epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. Seku Smith here in Atlanta. My main man, John Schumann's in New Jersey. John Hartzell's behind the glass as always. Bring it to you live. NBA playoffs are two weeks away, Shoe. Later in the show, we'll be joined by J. Michael of the Indianapolis Star to talk about the Pacers and their unbelievably resilient season since losing Victor Oladipo to a severe knee injury. Um, they got a huge matchup Friday night against the Boston Celtics. They currently have a one-game lead over Boston for the fourth seed in the East, so we could be looking Looking at a preview of what's to come potentially in the playoffs. But before we get to all that, shoot, there was another just gruesome, devastating injury to Yusuf Nurkic of the Portland Trailblazers out for the season with a compound fracture of his left tibia and fibula. And, and, and he went down late in, in double overtime of a win over the Nets. But for him to have the kind of season he was having and for it to end like that, like it did, how how brutal is that for not only Nurkic, but for the Trailblazers? I mean, it's obviously brutal. You don't want that to happen to any player at any time, but the timing just stinks. Like, so close, they were so close to the postseason. It happened in double overtime. So you can't help but think, like, oh, if, if these guys just make one more free throw, you know, anybody either on either team just makes one more free throw in regulation or the first overtime, you know, you don't even get to that point. Right. It was tough to say. I mean, first feel for him and, and knowing. Uh, how agonizing that must have been for him and to know that it's going to take a, a, a year out of his career. And then, you know, obviously uh, for Portland, that's, you know, also dealing with the CJ McCollum injury. And to know that also, you know, it just takes some of the, you know, uh, juice out of the Western Conference playoffs a little bit. You know, we've talked about it, like there's probably six or seven, six or seven teams could be that other team in the conference finals with Golden State and Portland was one of them, I think. And now, you know, it's hard to see them you know, winning two rounds, let, let alone one. So it stinks. You know, it's like the worst thing about sports is injuries and the timing of it is awful, especially for a team that has been really, really good. And for a player that's been really, really, who's having a really good season too. Are you worried at all that a, a first round elimination forces them into some decisions they wouldn't have made otherwise in the off season? That's a good question. I don't, I don't, you know, I can't put myself in Neil O'Shea's shoes and, and know exactly what he's thinking in that regard. I mean, of the mindset that, you know, not everything is championship or bust, that being a very good team for several years in a row is a great thing. And I don't necessarily think you should give on, give up, give up on that and risk, you know, falling just to see if you can get a higher ceiling. So, I, I mean, I think Terry Stotts has been a great coach for those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, Damian, Damian Lillard, we've sung his praises quite a bit here over the last uh, month or so. I don't know. I think yeah, maybe there's a higher ceiling if, if they trade him a column and, and, and get some more uh, talent on the wings or at the forward positions. But who knows? I mean, who knows what that might look like, you know? I mean, it, I think it's easy, easier said than done. Sure. To to sort of uh, 
trade one piece for another and, and think that it's going to make you a better team. Nurkic's shoe was in the running for most improved player, I would assume, by a lot of people. And I know that's the award you focused on for the first in your breakdowns on, on the award season for NBA.com. What did you learn just looking up the numbers, crunching the numbers about the field for most improved? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's always a tough award to gauge because there are so many different tiers, right? There's, there's a lot of different tiers to go from overmatched rookie to MVP candidate. Right. And just think of all the tiers that Giannis Antetokounmpo has climbed over the years. He's a great example. Yeah. And what's amazing. I mean, I think the case for Pascal Siakam is absolutely there and he will probably be number one on my ballot. But there is a case for both Antetokounmpo and Paul George, given the seasons that they've had to win this award a second time. Both of those guys have won it before Antetokounmpo I think a couple years ago and Paul George uh, I believe it was five or six years ago mm-hmm. and they both have taken things to a new level to they've gone from from all-star to MVP candidate and that's a maybe that's a harder leap to make than some of the some of the leap that some of these other guys have made mm-hmm. um, so I'm I, I mean I think I, I think Siakam is my number one pick and I think DeMontis Sabonis is there maybe is possible number two and then after that, I, I don't know. And I, it's possible I'll go with Antetokounmpo or Paul, like one of these two guys that's already won the award and and not feel too uncomfortable about that. You know, you see hear a lot of buzz about D'Angelo Russell and there's some, there's a case to be made there, but it, it doesn't hold up as strong as some of these other guys, uh, statistically at least. And we've talked about his improvement, you know, here quite a bit and, um, you see it in his maturity most of all, but just numbers wise, it doesn't, he doesn't quite stack up as far as the, the jumps that some of these other guys have made. Anyone that's surprising on the list of names that you, you dug up, anybody that jumped out statistically, they wouldn't have jumped out at you otherwise. I guess Danilo Gallinari, but then he's a different case, right? Cause he was dealing with injuries basically all last season. And so he took a step backward last season, obviously, but he's having a terrific year. And if you just look at numbers across, but he he shows like I basically ran through most improved in, in regards to points, rebounds, and assists. Most improved in, in in regard to shooting. Most improved in regard to to rebounding percentage. And Gallinari pops up on a lot of those lists. I would have to before I put him on my ballot. I'd have to go back and look at previous seasons and and see if this is just a real step forward for him or if it's you know, just him regaining prior form prior to, you know, these, these injury filled seasons that he's had uh, prior to this one. So that was a kind of an interesting one that popped up. And then there's always, you know, there's a lot of second year guys, De'Aaron Fox pops up quite a bit, John Collins, Mm-hmm. Um, quite a bit. So, you know, I, I, you know, I still feel comfortable with Siakam as a, as a number one spot on, on my ballot. He's taken a big jump um, as far as his scoring efficiency. He's gotten to the free throw line a, quite, a lot more than he did last season, which really helps him, uh, his scoring efficiency. And then if you look, the one thing that pops out to me with him is if you look at the percentage of his field goals that are assisted, that number went uh, way down. So from so last season, he was assisted on seventy two percent of his buckets. This season, only on fifty six percent. And that's the sort of the that's the biggest drop in the league. And it just tells me that he's doing a lot of the work himself, right? Like mm-hmm. he was assisted on most on on basically three quarters of his buckets last year. This year, that's down to almost half. 
And that just tells me that he is, he is doing a lot of the work for himself this year more than he ever has. And that tells me that he is sort of a, um, more of a, just a bucket getter, like, uh, than we've ever seen him be. And that's, um, you know, that's important, I guess, to me. And as far as uh, the most improved numbers, how much of your evaluation of most improved is weighted on an increased opportunity as opposed to some real tangible improvement in a guy's game, like a guy developing a jump shot or his ball handling, getting so much better that he becomes a different kind of player. I mean, how much of it is just an opportunity in terms of more minutes and more access to, to make plays, to get buckets, whatever, as opposed to this guy, you know, you can tell this guy went in the lab over the summer and reshaped his game. It's impossible to separate the two completely because if the guy's a better player, he's going to get more opportunities, right? And more opportunities are going to lead to him being a better player because he's going to get more reps and he's going to be more comfortable out on the floor, more confident also. I mean, I don't know if that, I don't know if that goes hand in hand necessarily all the time. I mean, there, there are opportunities for guys like maybe you, you go from a, a, a six-man to a starter. That, in turn, is going to give you more – minute right, opportunities but, but but maybe you stay a six man and you're just really good in your role like much better in your role this year than you were last year I guess that's possible I, I mean you to really see it you have to watch like yeah. you have to you have to watch games and understand that okay this is something that he is doing that I've never seen him do before you know I'll just give you one example like I watched you know, the Knicks enough this year and, and mm-hmm. saw Emmanuel Moutier just do some stuff with the ball that he hadn't done prior. Like just right. felt, would just seem more comfortable and more skilled with the ball. Now I wouldn't put him anywhere close to in my most improved list, but it's just a one little skill that I noticed different. You could see it in a shot, you know, just uh, how confident a guy's with shooting and how quick his release is. Right. Um, that makes a difference. But I, I still think it's impossible. Like we don't notice, we don't necessarily notice Siakam's improvement if, uh, Nick Nurse doesn't give him the ball, doesn't run pick and rolls for him out of a timeout, you know, give him those opportunities to to show him and say, or just say, hey, if you get the rebound, you go. And, and you have the license to go coast to coast on this team, you know. Um, not that ne- he didn't necessarily have that license last year. But I, I, I do think it's, it's impossible to completely separate opportunity and uh, development. Mm-hmm. you know, between two. And I, like I said, I mean, you can, I mean, even shooting a guy may be a better three point shooter this year and that, but that may be linked to who he's playing alongside, you know, and, and. I mean, not having DeMar DeRozan, but then adding Kawhi Leonard, it changes the dynamic, even though, yeah, yeah you're replacing one player. And then you have Danny Green. A, a different one. Yeah, Danny Green. Yeah, exactly. He, Danny Green, who just shoots poorly in even numbered years and, and shoots well <laughs> in odd numbered years. He's got some, some, some kind of streak going where like every even numbered year, he, he doesn't shoot very well. And then every odd, odd number year, he's like one of the most improved league, uh, shooters in the league. So Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's interesting. You, it, to me, it's it's one of those awards that always has kind of a nuanced look because of the circumstances. Every you know, every guy you know is going to have different variables that pop up in a season. You know, but you can't necessarily look at it and go, well, just look at take a class of players. Like, hopefully, most rookies show some significant improvement from one year to the next. It doesn't necessarily go well for them in a rookie. I mean, you're in the most improved conversation because you're going from ground zero maybe to the first floor as opposed to a third or fourth year guy that's going from role player to significant starter or even all-star status. Victor Oladipo is a guy who won that award based on him going from kind of a, a on-the-fence high pick 
you know, to a bona fide all-star. So it, it makes a difference. It, to me, it always makes a difference what that context is. You talk about second year guys. I mean, there's uh, second year guys that didn't even play last year. Like Monty Morris played 25 total minutes last season in the NBA. And you would think like, oh, like if you're just going through rosters looking for most improved candidates, you'd be like, oh, you know, Monty Morris like became a rotation guy and, a right. you know, an important rotation guy for one of the best teams in the league. And so it's kind of hard to compare him statistically. Last year, he played 25 minutes. Um, Derek White is another guy like that. He played 139 minutes last year for the Spurs. Mm-hmm. And Thomas Bryant played 72 minutes last year. And now he's starting, you know, for the Wizards. And one of the most – he's basically the best finisher in, at the basket this in the league this season. That's crazy. Um, he, he got cut this year, didn't he? Didn't he start the season with the Lakers? Was that this year? I'm not sure. I'm not even sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, he's completely clueless on the defensive end of the floor, by the way. But he is <laughs> offensively, he um, he's having a heck of a season. You could even go within the season shoe and just look at guys who have made significant leaps in terms of production and, and performance. You know, look at look at Marvin Bagley. You know, from where he started in his rookie season to what he's doing on a regular basis now is significantly different. I'm not saying he he rises into the category most improved, but it just it just shows how quickly you can flip a narrative on a player, you know, based on the opportunity, you know, and in in the production that you show given that opportunity. It's it's uh I think it's also a testament to the player development component that is now robust in most places around the league that we see such significant skill improvement for a lot of players throughout the course of a season. A good friend of mine is John Beckett is the player development coach for the Nuggets. And he's been doing it for years, but we talked about it during All-Star Weekend, just about how significant that is for the Nuggets and the young players to continue to probe how to improve their games on a regular basis, like on a that you that you see the gains of that improvement daily. Um, it's pretty it's pretty impressive when you think about it, the way it's done now compared to the way it might have been done as recently as five or 10 years ago. Yeah, it's true. You know, there's definitely some rookies that have taken a big step forward from the first half of the season to the, to now. Bagley is one. Obviously, uh, Sexton is, is another we've mentioned before who has really improved. And so, yeah, um, kudos to the development guys on those teams. Actually, we talked to um, somebody with the Cavs over All-Star, and he said that the a big factor in Sexton getting better was Matthew Dellavedova coming over from the Bucks and helping Sexton learn how to be like a point guard, you know, like that Sexton really hadn't had uh, the proper sort of training as far as seeing the floor and, and being a point guard and, and, just, and, and distributing the ball and making plays. So it's interesting how um, – to see the light turn on, I guess, with some of these guys, definitely. Um, and, you know, I don't know how you sort of, you know, there's some voters that will, won't vote for a second-year guy with the, with the most improved award, um, but it's hard to ignore what De'Aaron Fox has become versus last season and how much he drives basically the identity of a team that is the most improved, you know, one of the most improved teams in the league. It's, it's kind of, you know, it's tough to, it's tough to measure. Like I said, there's different tiers in this league and it's tough to compare a guy making the jump that De'Aaron Fox has made with the guy, you know, making the jump that Giannis Antetokounmpo has made. Yeah. I, I stand corrected on Thomas Bryant, by the way, he was, he was with the Lakers in their G league team up and up on the big team last year. He was one of the casualties of, the Lakers summer of LeBron 
um, and found his way to Washington and has since become, as you said, I mean, Mr. Finisher, apparently. Um, <laughs> he had two big buckets last night. He had, he had a, a, a three for the lead last night, and then the game was tied up against Phoenix they were playing. Phoenix tied it back up, and then he had a and one for the lead after that. Unbelievable. Game, game-winning bucket uh, in the paint, both off feeds from Bradley Beal. Yeah, I, I wasn't going to bring up Devin Booker. And his uh, <laughs> scoring spree. But since you mentioned it, call me what call me when he scores fifty in a game that his team wins. <laughs> <laughs> the hate is real. I mean, it's real. Um, this is March basketball. I mean, uh, you get some funky stuff in late March and yeah. early April. With with, I mean, not that Devin Booker scoring fifty points is like beyond the realm of possibility or anything like that. But mm-hmm. but you you definitely get some. Uh, individual exploits in games that don't matter in late March and early April more than you do uh, other times during the season. Yeah. Well, along along the lines of most improved, DeMontis Sabonis uh, of the Indiana Pacers is a guy who I would imagine is going to make some lists. And we mentioned we would talk to Jay Michael about the Pacers. Sabonis certainly ranks among the people we need to discuss with him just for uh, a, a really interesting season for a team that people probably would have written off after Victor Oladipo goes down. And instead, they uh, they refuse to budge and, and refuse to go away in that Eastern Conference playoff chase. So, J. Mike, thanks for joining us first and foremost. And if you could, just explain to me, why in the hell haven't the Pacers faded away? They would have every excuse. You know, nobody would hold it against them if they just faded from the standings and, and got out of the way and gave everybody these dream matchups they think they want in the Eastern Conference playoffs, but here they are, just just sitting there, ready to spoil everything. Yeah, they just play hard. You know, there was not there was not any contemplation. Um, you know, once Oladipo went down, you know, the, you know the popular opinion was well, just tank and play for a draft pick. Well, you know that didn't make a lot of sense because they were too high up in the standings, and we know the bottom of the East is so bad, you really couldn't. Couldn't, couldn't accomplish anything there. And I, I think also it's just not, it's just not the DNA of, uh, I think, the franchise with the kind of what they want to put forth to the fan base. But, you know, Nate McMillan, that, that kind of goes against practice and all the stuff, you know, what, what, what he's been preaching, what Kevin Pritch has been preaching all season. So it kind of would be a huge contradiction to do so uh, as well. And if you look at the composition of the roster, it's nothing but a bunch of blue-collar guys who do a couple of things well, um, not too many guys do things great. I mean, Bogdanovich is a, is a pretty good three-point shooter, but there aren't too many guys who you could say are great at several things. You have guys who are a lot of utility type of players who are, you know, that's just, that's just how they are. So you look at the composition of the team, the, the coach, kind of how the franchise is run, and that's just kind of why they're still hanging around. And they're going to beat teams that, you know, they're going to, they're going to pull out games and be impressive sometimes when you least expect it. Uh, but they're also capable of uh, some duds when you least expect it too. Um, and I just, I just think they, they just play hard. And it's just as simple as that. And, you know, they were in a three position for most of the season until the recent losing streak they've hit after All-Star break. So that's still pretty good considering that they don't really have what you'd call a superstar. Yeah. 45 and 30 with that one game lead over Boston. Is is that a good matchup for them without Oladipo just on the hoof when you look at the guys they're going to put on the floor against Boston's guys? One team has great chemistry. The other does not. <laughs> um, one team has stud personnel at every spot. 
I think people would argue that the Pacers have good but not great personal leverage. But it seems like a real contrast in terms of styles, makeup, and, and basically everything else. This is a great 4-5 or five matchup to me. Yeah, no, it is. And actually, you know, for months I've been saying Boston's a better matchup for them because for a minute it wasn't sure if it was going to be Boston or maybe it could be Philadelphia. Philadelphia is a terrible matchup for them. Boston's a good matchup. And, you know, these teams have played twice. Uh, they still have two, they have two meetings left, including, um, you know, Friday night, uh, uh, this upcoming week, Friday night game against in Boston to kind of determine the season series. And I think that's going to ultimately determine who's probably the four the four seed and gets home court advantage. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, if you look at the matchups, like the, 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 the one that the Pacers won, um, you know, Boston was switching, you know, Kyrie Irving on to Bogdanovich a lot. And what did the Pacers do? They, okay, you're going to give us a 6'8 guy versus a point guard who's not really a strong defender anyway. We're going to post him up and get easy buckets, and that's what they did. And there are times when, you know, you know, you have to – obviously you have to be able to defend Kyrie Irving. And the Pacers have good defensive guys. Like Corey Joseph is the guy that comes off the bench and defends the best uh, backcourt player – just just about every time. So he's going to harass Kyrie Irving. I think he did a really good job against him in their first meeting as well. So uh, they, they can match up with Boston's some of their more dynamic players. So even though Joseph doesn't shoot the ball well, he can stay on the court because he can defend guys like Kyrie very well. And Boyan can post him on switches. Boyan can post Jason Tatum and get to where he wants uh, on the floor. So it, it does present some, some interesting contrast. I'm just curious how these teams kind of change up things going forward because there's so many intriguing matchups. I think this could easily end up like the Cleveland series last year where game to game, you couldn't really get a peg on exactly how each game was going to unfold because there was just so much versatility actually in some of the matchups where it could go either way, no matter which game it was. Yeah, Jake, it's John Schumann. How you doing, man? Hey, man. Now, the Pacers aren't certainly aren't the only team that's better at home than on the road but they've lost yeah. nine straight road games now. Yep. Um, how, yep. how, what, you know, what's the issue, first of all, and then how important is it to hold on to that four seed? I think it's huge for them because, number one, this was their, this is a goal they've been talking about since uh, before the regular season tip, having home court advantage in the first round. So I think it's important to them just, you know, to accomplish that goal. I think psychologically is important. But even before they hit this streak where they've lost nine home games in a row, they were having trouble winning on the road. Uh, they had uh, they won a game against Philadelphia on the road earlier this season, which was probably their best road win. Uh, but short of that, you know, they got routed against Boston on the road. They they had Toronto on the ropes against the on the road and lost there. They 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 played. When you look at how they played against some of the better teams in the conference on the road. They were in good position to win a lot of those games. And what happened was similar to what you saw in Oklahoma City, dominating the game, leading by double digits, and you allow them to go on a 24 to nothing run in the third quarter, and it changes the tone of the game. That pretty much is what happens with them on the road. And I was talking to Boyan Bogdanovich last night, and I could tell he was kind of frustrated by it. He says, you know, he says, we get nervous when another team starts making buckets. And you can see it. Um, I think the biggest thing, John, that they don't deal with well is late switching. Whenever a team, you know, if, if you switch early and give them the matchup, like I was talking about Bogdanovich against a guard, they'll exploit it. They'll go with Sad Young down there against a smaller guy and get an easy bucket. But when they run that late switch, late in the clock, it throws them off. 
And that's been a problem with them all season. And good teams, versatile teams that have the personnel are going to do that kind of stuff. And so I think that coupled with being on the road, it's, it's something, it's, it's a mental hurdle. And I think the idea that, you know, that you see guys like Thad Young maybe doing too much. Now, he'll tell you he's doing too much late in these in the situations because nobody's moving and he's got to put up a tough shot. Sabonis, same thing. He's, he, he's got the ball last night on the baseline against Jeremy Grant. Sabonis is left-hand dominant. He's trying to get to his left hand. The baseline is an extra defender. There's no way he can get to his left hand. The easiest decision is to kick the ball out, repost, and get it back. But instead, what he'll do is he'll try to create some difficult shot under the rim that ends up being an air ball and putting another team in transition. And this is how the opponent get energized in the third quarter. I just don't think coming out of halftime when the opponent makes some adjustments that they respond well to the adjustments and late switching is one of the adjustments that I think they had yet to figure out. We've all sort of talked about Nate McMillan as a coach of the year candidate. And obviously, you know, and, and basically the thought is, you know, what he's done with this team, despite the uh, Oladipo injuries, plural, is terrific. I want to know, like, what, what do you think his imprint is on this team sort of beyond its resilience? You know, we all know that how resilient they've been and, and, and t- you know, and still staying in near the top of these standings despite Oladipo's absence. What do you think is the, beyond that, what do you think is McMillan's sort of biggest imprint on how this team plays? Defense, you know, defense, when they, when they're at their best, when they're, you know, um, you know, like they just recently uh, beat the Nuggets by 36 points at home. As good as the offense was in that game, their defense absolutely uh, smothered Denver. I mean, Corey Joseph abused Jamal Murray. And that's, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, Nate McMillan has gotten guys like Bogdanovich to play best defense I've ever seen him play. Um, not saying that he's a great defender, but he's still better than I expected these Definitely. last two years. Same with Tur- same with Tariq Evans. You know, I was telling Tariq, this was a couple months ago, I said, man, I've seen you in the league for 10 years. I've never seen you hustle defensively, deflections, um, using his size to his advantage in the low post when he's switching against big guys. I mean, the effort's there. It doesn't mean that they're always going to obviously stop someone, but just making the right decisions, the right rotations all the time. So I think when you look at guys like that, I mean, to me, Sabonis, you know, I thought coming into the season, earlier this season, um, you know, defensively, especially you get him away from the rim, he is a liability because he's defending in spaces and his strength. But he's actually gotten better at that, I've noticed in the last few months as well. It's Nate somehow gets these guys who you don't think should be able to defend as well as they do to defend. And if you look at where they rank in terms of the league in that regard, they're top one, top, you know, top two, top three all season. And I think that's what's been able to sustain them despite all the people's injury, because I'm going to tell you right now, I, I thought the entire season or most of the season, even before Victor got hurt, I didn't think he was playing that great individual defense. He was getting beat a lot, especially on closeouts by slower guys who had no business beating him, which made me think something was wrong with his knee long before it got hurt. I wasn't quite sure about that. But the way I see it is they've actually been able to post this sort of defensive effort without Oladipo being 100% for most of the season, which actually makes it even more impressive. So that and then you throw in Miles Turner, who's got to be in a defensive player of the year conversation. He's been rebounding lately like a beast, hitting guys, getting physical. You know what the rim protection is, how, how good he is at that. But switching on the small guys, uh, that wasn't his strength coming in the season. He's got better at that. Actually, I would trust him in that situation more often than I would have before. So when you say with Nate McMillan's imprint, I mean imprint, 
that's what it is. Because if you take away the defensive part with the droughts they have offensively, then we're not even talking about them being a playoff team, much less a potential top four seed. Right. J. Mike, who, who has provided the emotional stability or who or what? Um, is there something structural within the organization? I covered the Pacers years ago, lifetime ago. There was just kind of a steadiness when Donnie Walsh was in charge about yeah. how they went about their business. Who, who's been that steadying force or what has been that steadying force emotionally for this group? Thad Young. He, he's really, you know, he's a guy that's kind of, you know, unheralded. You know, if, if you talk about the, the defensive side of the ball, you know, I think Miles Turner's going to get more love from voters than, than Thad Young's going to get. But Young's been fantastic. And, you know, he's the vet, you know, he's that veteran guy. Even with Victor there, you know, I thought Thad Young was had more control of the mood of the team than anybody else. Um, because he's been in the league, because he's the guy that, you know, he, he walks what he talks. And, you know, that, that series against Cleveland last year, I mean, Thad Young's ability to switch out on these guys and, and, and smaller guys and give them hell uh, was what allowed, was part of what allowed them to, you know, push Cleveland to seven games. So I say Thad Young is that guy emotionally in that locker room that, that kind of controls that. Um, you know, since he's joined the team, Wes Matthews, I think, has been a, a, a pretty good with him in there. But I, I'd say, you know, Thad Young, because he's pretty much a spitting image on the court in practices with Nate McMillan is when he's on the sideline. So I, I think he's uh, – last year they would tell you it was Al Jefferson was one of those guys too. Uh, even though he didn't play a lot. Uh, but, yeah, Thad Young, I think, is he kind of has the temperature and controls the mood of, uh, mood of that team, and he kicks him in the backside. I'll tell you right now, he's going to have to kick him in the backside real hard to get him to finish this <laughs> season strong <'cause> they, <laughs> because the, the offensive issues they've had, they, they, they've, uh, that's going to end up sinking them in the end if they don't clean it up fast. Yeah, it it seems like it's wearing on them. Last thing about uh, about the Pacers uh, with Jay Michael of the Indianapolis Star joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. Do they have what they need in reserve to get through that first round series, whatever it is? Like you know, you always talk about teams flipping a switch or taking it to another yeah. level in the playoffs. Like yeah. it's one thing to steady, you know, to to finish as steady as they have or or try to finish as steady as they're trying to. It's another thing to get to the postseason and. You, you know, you're looking around going, who's going to step up and carry us tonight? Who's going to be our bell cow when we need one? Like, do they have that guy that, that we look at and say, he could get on the horse in the playoffs and ride it a little? The guy they're going to have to, who's going to have to take him there is, is Tyreek Evans off the bench. Mm. You know, they brought him in. They allowed Lance Stevenson to walk, and they brought Tyreek Evans in. I mean, if you look at last year's playoff series when uh, Lance got the ball on an inbound against Cleveland, and started walking like 10 steps in like that kind of nonsense, you know, the, the kind of yeah. stuff people think is funny about Lance. That's the kind of stuff where we all laughed on the outside looking in. They weren't really pleased about <laughs> aside yeah. from the fact that, aside from the fact that no, Lance didn't compromise the defensive coverage. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if he was popping off of a, um, if he was, you know, lifting from the corner for an open three, defense wasn't running at him. And, you know, the defense isn't necessarily run at Tyreek Evans in that situation, but when he's running pick and roll with Sabonis, when those two are going, they can, if you look at times where the, the starters weren't getting the job done and the pace is still one big, probably the key to most of those wins was Sabonis playing with Tariq Evans. They've been, they've clicked since the preseason. And both of those guys could easily end up with 20 points and, uh, you know, 15 rebounds and assists between them. Uh, playing less than 30 minutes a game. So I think that's where the, that combination 
will pick the will pick them up if they're successful. Where you see maybe Miles Turner, Dior, Swargate, you know, maybe Darren Collison doesn't have it going because last season they lacked the size in the backcourt to switch comfortably, which is why they discouraged switching, particularly with their backcourt players fighting over screens, that sort of thing. With Evans, they can switch him, you know, on the, a guy the size of Paul George and not lose much defensively. So he gives them more options there, and he can pass over the top if they decide to blitz the ball handler on the ball on the pick and roll coverage. And, you know, you see a lot of occasions when they decide to do that, how he can still pass over the top, hit Sabonis cut into the rim, either Sabonis gets a dunk, or he makes that short roll and passes to somebody like McDermott in the corner, spotting up the three. I think those two are the center or at the center of not only the second unit, but getting them over the hump when they don't have it clicking with the starters on offense. So I'm going to say Evans in combination with Sabonis is going to be the key if um, they're going to have to take it to the next level where they'll have to do it every single game because, you know, you know, Thad Young isn't a stretch, isn't a stretch four, really. Uh, they've gotten this far. They got that far last year without really having a stretch four, without having a two guard behind Oladipo who really could shoot because they had Lance who wasn't a good shooter or or an efficient score. I mean, so that's where it's got to come from because that's that's what they brought Tyreek there for the postseason. I'll give you a stat, a Pacers stat that speaks to their shooting a little bit. This is the third straight season where they've ranked in the top ten in three point percentage but in the bottom 10 in the percentage of their shots that come from three-point range. So they've been a good three-point shooting team, but just not a prolific one whatsoever. It's kind of the way they play. They're a big mid-range, you know, big mid-range team. And then, you know, obviously some some post play, especially with Sabonis. Hmm. We we do trivia every week on the podcast, uh, J-Mike. Schumann has a stat for us every week that is usually okay. a brain buster. But you're, you're one of the smartest, most detailed writers that covers this league i'm expecting you to knock this out like bernard hopkins used to knock out his anyway go ahead shoot with you that's the inside boxing boxing dig for me oj it's a fairly straightforward one there are four teams that have gotten less than 10 percent of their minutes from rookies or second year players so these are veteran teams Less than 10% of their minutes have been played by rookies or second-year players. See if you can help name these teams that don't get barely any minutes from, from first- or second-year guys. Four teams. Okay, so all four teams. The Pacers are definitely one of them. Yes, their second lowest, 7% of their minutes have come from rookies or second-year guys. Wow. Yeah, that was, an e- that was an easy one uh, for the Pacers. Second um, lowest. Yeah. Second lowest. Um, let's see, rookies, I will go with uh, – who's Milwaukee's rookie? Dante DiVincenzo, who's out. Yeah, I'd, I'd say Milwaukee. Yeah, but they're they are not on the but list. But DJ Wilson's a second year guy. Um, yeah, let me just got, check. Where I, Milwaukee I would get. Milwaukee. I'm gonna say the Warriors. Go to say no. Yeah. Milwaukee's not. No, Milwaukee gets 11 percent of their minute, or has gotten 11 percent of their minutes from first or second year guys, mm-hmm. which is the seventh oh, okay. lowest rate. All right. The okay. Warriors is 12 percent, the eighth lowest rate. Really? So neither of those oh, wow. two teams. There. Really, the other three teams are all top four seeds. So all four teams are top so, four seeds in East, so, East so or the Phil- West. So Philadelphia? No, no, no. Philadelphia is the high is the highest among right. playoff teams. Now they I'm they okay. traded Shamit, but yeah, Ben Simmons is a second year. Yeah, I remember. Simmons oh damn! You know what? I'm keeping. You know what? I'm not thinking about second. I'm leaving out the second year. That's my mistake. Okay, yeah. first or second year guys. Um, wow. So that's uh, 
Washington, Denver, Portland. One in, one in uh, two in the west, one more in the east. Portland, yes, 8%. That's the fourth. Eight Portland is 8%? Yeah. Okay. Four, All right. Portland is fourth. So then we have one more west team, about, one more how, east. How about Houston? Houston, that is the absolute yeah. lowest. 5% of their minutes have come from rookies or second-year guys, and that's probably just guys that they've had come in and out off of their rotation. Season. What about Toronto? Toronto, yes. Yeah. That's our fourth yeah. one. Yeah. 8%, 8% uh, of their minutes have come from rookies or second year guys. So those are all – fifth is, is Miami. So it's, it's you know, playoff teams at the bottom. At the top is New York, 48%. Sacramento, Jeez. 43 Phoenix, 43 Chicago, 42 And Atlanta, 41 Philadelphia is the playoff team that has seen – has had the most minutes coming from first or second year guys. Mm. Um. 10% from rookies, 20% from second year guys. So, yeah, that's what is it? What should, what kind of signal should that send around the league? Like, hello, you know, <laughs> this yeah, well, yeah, it's pretty, pretty, you know, it's pretty obvious. obvious. Yeah. Especially when it comes like, to the Knicks. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, man. Well, I mean, I, I, I think the low end is interesting because it's basically teams that are now invested in the right now. So, Houston absolutely like is invested on yeah. winning right now, no matter what. They gave that contract to Chris Paul. Indiana, too. I mean, what do they have? Like, if you're just saying, okay, what do they have for the future? You, you know, you're talking about Aaron Holiday and, and you know, TJ Leaf as far as their first and second year guys that have played and you know they're pretty invested in right now it's it's why it's interesting to see them you know with their free agency status that's actually was one of the questions i wanted to ask you jay was like what do you think with all their free agents this summer what do you think is their priority like number one on their list of things to do this summer is what you well number one they clearly got a cap shooting i mean that's been um you know bogdanovich is you know going crazy. I think Bogdanovich is going to, you know, get a huge salary this offseason. I think trying to keep him is a, is a, is a major concern, uh, wanting to keep him around. I don't know if they have the cap space. I don't know if they want to go up that high to keep him. Cause I think, you know, he's making about what, 10 million this year. You know, you never know what the market's going to do, but I think he's going to make significantly more money than 10 million. So I think shooting is that priority. A lot of these guys, you know, I think, you know, sad young being a free agent, do you let him walk? I think that answer may ultimately be yes. Uh, I think Darren Collison walks as a free agent as well. But I think you try to keep Bogdanovich because you need, when you have Oladipo back, you need to have some shooters opposite of him to open up the floor to allow him to do what he does. So I think that's the, the priority for him. The, the guy who I just think is really interesting to figure out what you do with is Aaron Holiday. Because, you know, he was just about every team in the league called the Pacers checking on his availability uh, at the trade deadline. And, you know, they'll tell you that they never really seriously considered trading him. Uh, but they, they were a lot, there was a lot of interest in, in trying to pluck him. My question with Holiday is exactly where he, he's the size of a point guard with the mentality of a shooting guard. I, you know, you, you throw him the ball, you know, you kick it to him off the ball. He has no conscience. He will shoot it, which, you know, can be a good thing. Other times, maybe not so much of a good thing. So if you keep Holiday as your point guard in the future, which they believe that he is, I just think that's going to present some interesting uh, challenges because you're going to have the opposite of kind of what Darren Collison is, who's a setup guy. So I think they have to figure out after you deal with the shooters, keeping shooters on the team, they got to figure out what their identity is going to be going forward. If Aaron Holiday is a guy that you say, Hey, he can eventually start or be a rotation player. Because I think the, the way the team is built is going to have to be significantly different than what we've seen the last couple of years, which is, you know, this mid range shooting team, the problem that they're going to have going forward, you know, and I've been told this by, you know, several people around the league, the Pacers aren't, despite their success, aren't going to be, it's unlikely 
that they're going to be a major player for, uh, once again, for what you would consider a game-changing sort of free agent. So you're still looking at these role-type Danny Green sort of players that, that they're looking at. So, you know. But, so, well, that's so what I was going to get to. Like, what you don't have to use cap space on a free agent. You can use cap space on a trade. And that's why I think I'd be curious if the Mike Conley conversation comes back up in the summer when they have cap space and they can just trade for Mike Conley with their cap space and or, you know, a, a, a piece or a small piece or two, maybe a holiday or something like that. And that's a guy who can obviously, I think, complement Oladipo pretty well. Um, yeah, very, and, very well. And, and obviously raise their ceiling a little bit. That's still in the back of my mind. When Conley stayed in Memphis after the deadline, I didn't think that was the end of that sort of conversation. Right. At all. But here's the, here's the thing that I find curious. Like, like Larry Bird has, you know, from what I've been told is that, Bird insisted that they don't trade Aaron Holiday. That his opinion of Holiday is that he's a future, he's a future potential All Star. Now, wow. I mean, I, that, that, that's yeah. So, I mean, how much, how much does that play into what they do going forward when he gives that advice? Is that too high of a ceiling? I mean, I, I'm, I'm not willing to commit to that at this point for him. I mean, I got to still see a lot more before I even get, in, get into talking about All Star. But do you He's get, get the as good as Drew you... Holiday before I start believing <laughs> that? <laughs> exactly. So if, if you believe that, now you may be overvaluing him and you know letting a guy or like a Connolly or someone pass when maybe you should go go all in to try to try to flip your team. But look, I, you know, I was told during the trade deadline by multiple people that Holiday was told like, hey, you know, there's a lot of chatter about you. Something could happen. It may not happen, but something could happen because your name is out there. Um, wow. And, you know, um, you know the, the Pacers denied that they were looking to trade him, but that doesn't mean that there wasn't conversations. And from what I was told, there's a lot of conversations about him. And so do you value him as a future all-star, therefore you can't move him? Do you take the bird in the hand and get a guy like Conley now? <laughs> and, you know, because you could sit on holiday and maybe he's, maybe he's just a role player for you for the next, you know, four or five years. And, you know, yeah, I think teams like the Pacers with cap space who have a guy like a holiday that teams, you know, could, might be willing to give up a good asset for, maybe you got to roll the dice a little bit. I think that's some interesting uh, conversations that they're going to have to have. But, yeah, Larry Bird, from what I'm told, really values Aaron Holiday. So I guess it depends on how much sway he's going to have with their decision-making going forward that's going to, impact what we see but yeah yeah i was a little bit shocked by that too thinking. <laughs> but ross that's just a roster that uh, that will evolve um and you and you don't know how it evolves based on the results of this season in the playoffs and in what victor oladipo's future will will do to how they try and continue to build man great stuff uh j michael as always man enjoy reading your stuff obviously on on uh, indystar.com and uh, the tweets are always good, man. You break the game down in ways that, you know, that I don't think we get from everybody. So it's good to have your presence on a team that uh, that needs the shine. Um, with David Benner as a PR man, they need all the blessings they can get. <laughs> you got that right. And make sure you tell them I said that. Is Seiko's picture still hanging in the, in the media room over there? <laughs> it, has, it, it has. I think it has some darts in it. I can't tell if it's safe or not. <laughs> I, I, I know it used to be hanging over the garbage can. I thought that was going to exactly. be <laughs> better. Put it there strategically. So, um, but thanks, man. We'll, we'll see you down the road. Right, in the postseason, man. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate, appreciate it. it. All right, guys. Talk to you soon. All right, now take care. Shoot, that's uh, that's that's one of those guys who has a handle on the game 
that not every beat writer does. It's, it's unique. That's one of the things I love about all the, the v- variations of guys covering the league. People have different focuses. He he knows that team inside and out now. He's got them, he's got them locked in. Just the style of play, um, everything they got going on, man. It's, it's robust, the amount of information you can get out of him about that team. We'll be back Monday with another episode, Power Rankings. Dissect the last couple weeks of the season here in a, in a huge weekend around the league, as always. Um, check out the newest Kia Race to the MVP ladder on Friday on NBA.com. Also be discussing it on 10 Before Tip at 6.30 Eastern um, with Jared Greenberg. Shoot, I don't know what you got planned this weekend. I'm, I'm going to enjoy all this basketball, March Madness, and NBA. Go Hokies. Uh, yeah, um, so there'll be a lot of good stuff going on. Be sure to subscribe to Hang Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes all season long. Regular season is winding down, but we are not going to stop. We're going to be here for you throughout the playoffs and the offseason here on the Hangtime Podcast. For John Schumann in New Jersey, Seku Smith, our producer John Hartzell, we'll see you right here next time on the Hangtime Podcast.